get it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Pod Me If You Can. This is Pod Me If You Can. Movie reviews by David and Lloyd. An Australian podcast on your favorite movies. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can. I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. Today's film is Quentin Tarantino's eighth cinematic offering, The Hateful Eight. And uh, just a heads up, we didn't read the leaked script and some of us didn't watch the trailer and stuff, but we've definitely seen it now and uh, this will be full of spoilers. So if you haven't seen the film, check it out before listening to the podcast. Lloyd, uh, you and I both got to see this in 70mm. Do you want to tell me about your experience? I saw this at the... uh, It got extended um, by a week. I was so fortunate um, at the Hayden Orpheum um, Picture Palace in Sydney. Uh, and so I just said, oh, I have to go. So I made the trip out to Sydney. And that's the f- it's the first time I've ever seen a movie at a cinema that was made back in the 30s. Like I'm talking old school um, cinemas, post Nickelodeon, of course, where the cinema or the theatre room was supposed to double up as both a place where you can stage shows, actual physical stage shows, and of course project a movie. And it is such a beautiful theatre. Oh my gosh, the details on the walls, the statues on your right and your left, like um, it's just such a beautiful place. I, I, if I lived nearby, all the movies we do on this podcast, I would watch at that theatre. It is such a beautiful theatre. And you have this beautiful red curtain um, there. And the and when the overture started and the curtain peeled apart, it just added so much to the atmosphere. It was such a great experience. What about yours, Dave, in Melbourne? The uh, the Roadshow version, the 70mm version, was only screening at six uh, theatres in Australia. The one I went to see it at was the Sun Theatre in Yarraville. Several of them were in Melbourne, so I was lucky that they were sort of uh, accessible to me. The funny thing is, Quentin Tarantino went to the Sun Theatre. Now, not the session I was at, (laughs) Lloyd. Unlucky. But uh, (laughs) when he was, I know, (laughs) when he was in uh, Australia, he he took the time to go and visit a few uh, cinemas. Basically, the projectionist did a great job of kind of retelling the story of how Quentin Tarantino dropped by and made it a bit of a, an experience. So they they pretty much um, come down and they show you a 35mm bit of film and then uh, hold up a 70mm so you'll be very impressed that it's that much bigger. And uh, as a former projectionist, I was kind of intrigued by it all, but uh, obviously I'm not going to be able to go up and check out the, the equipment in the projection room. Uh, Quentin Tarantino, Samuel Jackson, Kurt Russell dropped in uh, while in Australia and they did a little Q&A, but not at the Sun Theatre. So... They, the Sun Theatre did a film uh, showing how they sourced the 70mm equipment from someone's garage and uh, were able to sort of set everything up. And Quentin Tarantino tells the story that uh, he it brought a tear to his eye when he saw that vision, you know, that they cared so much to want to project it in 70mm. So um, you can find his entire uh, speech, everything he said at the Sun Theatre on YouTube. Somebody did sit and record it. Pretty much they... Uh, he told the projectionist not to fuck it up, <laughs> was the, the funny, you know, punchline of the, the projectionist's speech. And uh, they they pretty much gave out a door prize as well to whoever sat in H8, which I thought was all right. Wasn't me. Didn't think of it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, look, the thing was, I didn't know what to expect for 70 mil Lloyd, because as all the paraphernalia tells you, 
1966 is like the last time 70 mil was used for the movie cartoon i think it was and yeah that uh format was of course used with on ben-hur i think the greatest story ever told battle of the bulge i particularly saw ben-hur on a very special blu-ray box set which i've got like it's like the ultimate blu-ray edition it is absolutely beautiful but i don't know if it's um rendered exactly like um the the original negative like uh, i hear the story of how they got these lenses for this movie um i think it was at uh paramount or panavision sorry uh there was screening um ben hearn that's the first time quentin tarantino said that's the first time he's ever seen uh ben hearn projected in its original format at that particular theater and he's like saying oh it's beautiful and robert richardson his dop um was just taken on a tour around there and he's and around the storage rooms and he said oh what are those and he goes oh those lenses are the um 65 mil lens um that were used on ben-hur and he's like do they still work and they're like yeah we're pretty sure it still works and it just excited him um he told quentin tarantino about tarantino was like well i just saw ben-hur and that's what excited them to shoot hateful eight in that format um which is you know they had to retrofit the lenses to the modern um cameras tarantino of course is one of the few directors who refuses to go to digital still shoots on film notable um other filmmakers who do that as well is uh christopher nolan who's a diehard 70 mil or sorry a uh, filmmaking a uh, f- literally film guy and of course quentin tarantino who will never shoot on fi- um on digital it's interesting like 70 mil seeing the hateful eight i really felt like uh, this was going to be the big opportunity for for our generation to see. Yes, that, exactly. You know? I felt the same way. I was like, wow. Like, uh, wh- like I thought I would never experience like how Ben Hur was shown with an intermission, you know, uh, with a overture at the beginning. Like we can only ever experience that at home on Blu-ray discs, like s- special editions. I saw. Sorry, I also saw Lawrence of Arabia with my dad with the whole intermission, uh, w- with the overture at the beginning, um, and everything like that at home. I'm pretty sure that. Um, uh, some cinemas do retro viewings and try to do the the same thing relive that experience but to experience a new movie a modern movie in that same format oh i just love quentin tarantino for doing that i'm so disappointed i never experienced grindhouse like how it was originally shown it was just shown in australia i think for one day and it was just like oh well i guess i missed it you know well yeah they seem to pretty much just play them in theaters as two separate films like the marketing of it changed and it wasn't successful, but this felt like an event filmmaking. Um, something that would bring film buffs out of the woodwork, would bring uh, regular people out to see it. It felt like a date movie. It felt like, uh, well, I heard that at some screenings when we got to the intermission, not at my screening, but I heard people were discussing uh, what they thought would happen next and like getting really into it. And also, it's very funny that. The theatres, some Sun Theatre was doing this. I'm not sure if uh, the Orpheum was for you, but um, they were giving out coffee at intermission. And then after the intermission, you find out that the coffee is poisoned. So <laughs> That's that was brilliant. Really <laughs> they, did, yeah. Sorry, did they do that at your screening? They did, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't drink any. I don't drink coffee. But, yeah, I thought that was amusing that... You know, a subtle sort of nod to you've all just drunk this coffee. <laughs> oh, I just love the program that you get. And Dave, um, obviously you got one as as well. You did a, a showcase of it on our YouTube channel, which you guys can see. I'll, I'll put a link on um, the website, obviously. 
um, you get that program, you sit there, the overture starts, and there's something about that score by Ennio Morricone that just puts you in the mood as, as the music builds up to a crescendo, the lighting dims. It's such an experience, and then you're in the movie, just like, wow, I, I couldn't... There was this big grin on my face that I, I just couldn't um, hide, you know? It just <laughs> I was just, like, so excited. This is the thing. I feel like because we saw it at the movies, we've had a different experience. I've heard people say they read the script and didn't think that much of it. Um, the leaked script, I should say. Quentin Tarantino can't catch a break. Then the movie was leaked as you know, the screener. Um, famously, it's been talked about a lot. Uh, it went to an executive and he claims he never received it. Somebody's um, stolen it along the way and leaked it, supposedly. I think that's being investigated you know, internally and we'll, we'll, dis- we'll discover nothing about it. Uh, but so the film was leaked. It, it found its way onto piracy sites, and and I, I'd talked to people who, uh, you know, I'd seen the seventy mil. I was having a chat, and they said, um, "Oh yeah, I saw it. It wasn't that great. It was too talky. It was whatever." You know, they got bored, and then I discovered that they were among the disappointing people who downloaded it rather than watching it in the seventy mil roadshow edition. So I feel like I've had a real cinematic experience, and the fact that all these other people you know, shared this experience with the, I was with a great crowd. I was on a Sunday. Uh, I felt like a weird matinee kind of session. And, um, the people I was with laughed at every joke, like everything was part of the experience and loved it. Uh, I, I, mean, I had a very, very small crowd. Uh, this is, it was supposed to only show for a week in Sydney at the Orpheum. And because it was so successful, they extended by only three more days. So, of course, I, I couldn't make it during that first week. So when I saw it extended, I, I made my way to see it. Um, and I saw it on a day session about two o'clock in the afternoon. And there was only a handful of people. And I think I was the one la- laughing the loudest uh, in the whole thing. But I think my crowd liked it. There was just one guy in particular. I just think he was a bit bravo, sort of arrogant arrogant he was going oh what's the point of this you know at the overture i overheard that i'm just like oh gosh <laughs> right <laughs> didn't know what to expect well the the film is broken down into six parts six chapters so maybe we can just go chapter by chapter talk about them a little bit what how do you like that one. opening where we see uh the cross jesus on the cross and yeah, I just love his credit sequence. Like everything about, like uh, one of the other few directors who do who actually take care with credit sequence. It's not just like a lot of directors nowadays don't even have a credit sequence. It just begins right away, which I kind of like. But uh, before that, um, a lot of directors just have oh, here the credits, you know, shots of the city and stuff like that. And I, I feel like a good credit sequence puts you in the mood and things like that. One of the best directors ever to do it is Orson Welles. I think he really takes care with his credit sequences and just how he flashes the titles in in a particular transition i just really like but i think quentin tarantino is one of the best of all time like i'm reminded of jackie brown just on the escalator and the titles are coming up and and the music it's timed with the music it's just so awesome pulp fiction obviously reservoir dogs one of the best credit sequences of all time where they're all walking in slow motion kill bill was fantastic where you have the dead bride in the black and white and then um i think uh nancy sinatra song um she shot me down he shot me down bang bang plays over that uh, I, I just love it and in this one that awesome awesome score by Ennio Morricone I think it's the same score from The Thing but it wasn't actually used in The Thing he wrote it for the movie The Thing um, by John Car- Carpenter not the Howard I Hawks had heard one that, yeah. yeah and I, I think that's the song that plays but I can't be sure and it just puts you in that mood and that awesome hateful eight comes up and then I noticed a name 
Channing Tatum. I'm like, what? I didn't see him in any of the credits, you know? I was just like, okay. And I completely forgot that he was in it when, when his big reveal at the end. And I was just like, oh, right. That's right. I saw his name in the credits. <laughs> Channing Tatum is also in the new Coen Brothers movie. Oh, the um, um, Hail, Caesar? Hail Caesar? Yeah, cool. Uh, doing a dance number. He's, you know... Uh, he seems to be working with a lot more interesting directors, but I'm, and he, you know, he worked with the Wachowskis uh, in Jupiter Ascending, but I'm still having a lot of trouble not seeing him as Channing Tatum. So anyway, six parts. So chapter one, last stage to Red Rock. You know, we introduced to Kurt Russell and Sam Jackson's characters and uh, OB, who's driving the stagecoach, and just the setup. You know, Jennifer Jason Lee. Uh, there's this apple blossom song that plays while we're looking at shots of Daisy. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's, thought, it's, oh. it's a modern music in a Western. And uh, Tarantino definitely didn't invent this. I'm sure, like, everything he does, he, he he's always open about that. He always takes it from his favorite movies. Uh, take, for example, Inglorious Bastards. Um, he uh, that's actually a title off one of his favorite movies, Inglorious Bastards. You know, he just loved that movie to death. And um, <laughs> Yeah, I am... Um I was, I, you know, it makes me think of A Knight's Tale, uh, which, you know, obviously used all modern music within a medieval setting, and I'm sure there are many other examples. But um, that Apple Blossom song, I, as I was listening to it, I was just watching this thinking, I wonder if this is going to be an ongoing thing that we take the time in this 70 mil version to just have these songs play out. And when you see Daisy later and she plays the song, the Botany Bay song on the guitar, as we're sort of waiting for the poison to work and stuff. Apparently that was much longer in the um, the version we saw, the 70 mil. Oh, okay. I was wondering what the extra few minutes were on the version we saw. Well, I, I think I read um, that the song was extended. Uh, they do a bit of dialogue about, I believe it was Kurt Russell's character's dog uh, gets bitten by a snake. They're talking about that in the carriage. That was all cut. That was only in the 70 mil version. Uh, and there's some different, like... It's snappier. I think it's been cut down a little bit to be, uh, you know, a bit more of a fast-paced movie. Of course, there's no intermission, no overture, so uh, it would have been a different movie experience. And I've had trouble explaining exactly how the look is of 70 mil. I just always say it's a wider lens. Like, it's like the widest lens they can get without it distorting, obviously. So a very yeah. long rec- rectangle. <laughs> and I kind of... Yeah, I've kind of been saying, you know, it seems very crisp on the screen that the colors are quite nice yeah i think you saw one of the first runs of that print so your um i think film print would have been a lot cleaner than mine mine uh, was pretty dirty i think it's just been ran through several times like they ran it twice a day for a week and a half so i saw it on the second last day so it's, it's been run through a good time but all that to me just adds to the nostalgic factor like i loved all the scratches in planet terror although that was artificial and of course um in death proof it just adds something um to me in fact i have nostalgic memories of reservoir dogs and pulp fiction on vhs because it was four by three but it just seemed like the transfer was dirtier it just had more of a film look Uh, i didn't see pulp fiction reservoir dogs at the cinemas obviously i was too young but um when i got the dvd version it just seems too clean they've cleaned all that up so uh, i'm so thankful i've seen the hateful eight in a cinematic look the way quentin tarantino would just love you know that the, the texture of the film on screen was there any scratches on your print? I'm then? pretty sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, because yeah. I, I read, um, 
uh, I think it was a Reddit forum or something where people were discussing the look of the film and trying to explain it. And um, one person was saying, was anyone else's print uh, covered in green scratches? Which basically means that a projectionist missed a loop or, uh, you know, uh, went over... So it was scratching as the film was playing past one of the rollers. And, uh, yeah, so that would have been caused by... um, somebody messing up and then it's there forever that's ruined uh they wouldn't have got another print sent to them so they would have had to continue to play that print you know it's um it's not something you can necessarily see as it's happening because it looks fine and then the next time you play it you realize you've messed up the one before so uh you know that that's a bit sad for some of the copies but um mine was perfectly clean and uh the sun theater do a good job of um you know taking care of prints and stuff but uh the the what do you call it the intermission they also had their own line at the candy bar for um the hateful eight people because it is a timed intermission i think it was 11 or 12 minutes you know you've got to get in and out and you don't want to miss anything when you come back in because i actually think that intermission was very well timed yeah Uh, especially um, in the dramatic terms where that intermission is placed it's awesome um the uh did you get a warning to um uh, telling you that oh we're coming it's about to start they did some chimes and announcements but i only went out for a minute yeah same I just-, I just went to the bathroom like my bladder is so horrible i hope more <laughs> movies embrace the intermission <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure a lot of people agree with you um i enjoyed the mythology of the hangman oh yeah and uh you, you know what kills me about hateful eight I love Kurt Russell. I'm a huge Kurt Russell fan. Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, Escape from New York. I just love uh, Tango and Cash. I just love uh, his movies so much. I grew up watching them. Here he play- he's aging and he's be- perfectly aged in this role. This awesome dialogue. He gets along so well with the director. He's just chewing up the scenes. He's surrounded by a great, great cast. And I- I'm a huge fan of action. I know Quinta Tarantino is a huge fan of action, but I never see him fire a gun. And it's just killing me inside that I never saw the, the hangman actually fight outside of the uh, outside of um, you know in the west and that's another thing about this movie that I think uh, I can understand where Quentin Tarantino is coming from it's shot on uh, on 65 mil this beautiful Panavision the widest screen possible yet it's all um, projected in one room you know I- indoors and it's just killing me i would love to see it in a django on chain where it goes through all these different places all these different environments but it's shot with this camera and it's i i, I love a huge part of me is just disappointed that he he you know I, that the hateful eight wasn't that but i can understand perfectly where quentin tarantino is coming from he actually said in an interview it's really um uh, limiting to think like that, like narrow-minded to think that this format is only built for the big screen. Why can't it be used to explore the facial expressions of Samuel Jackson or Kurt Russell? Why can't it be? And it, and it does. It works on all those levels. Like you, you really see the human face up there. You feel the paranoia. What's going on? Like you're looking at that person or that object in the far corner. You're like, oh, what's going on there? And you're looking at the, this person to your right. It just adds so much. Like that was one of it's such a great example of the perfect tool used for this um for this dramatic story like it all works so well he's such a genius like uh, you can hear the django unchained podcast we did where i go on and on about quentin tarantino i'll try to limit that as much as possible <laughs> on this podcast <laughs> it, it has been done before it's true 
Uh, I think on the last one we talked about our favourite Tarantino films too, so you can seek that out there. I thought it was great that Samuel Jackson, after working with him for so long, finally got a top billing in this film, you know? Uh, that's very rewarding, I would imagine, um, suddenly being, you know, seen that way. And and uh, the, the character of Major Warren and his defection and his war hero status, the Lincoln letter, I mean, it's this beautiful kind of concoction of of lies and uh, it works so well in this scene. I wasn't sure about the Lincoln letter, except when she spits on the letter and he slaps her and she goes out the carriage door. Yeah, she he punches her in the face. Yeah, he, oh, slaps her, punches her, sorry. Um, and she goes straight out the door. His reaction made me think the Lincoln letter was real. Because if she just spat on it and he went, oh, well, you know, like whatever. But the way he committed to how protective he was of it and everything, even though it was fake... Yeah, I really enjoyed that and made me think, okay, it's a real letter from Lincoln, which obviously everybody doubts throughout the movie. Yeah, the the one thing I've noticed is this is, it feels like Quentin Tarantino has done this very effort, effortlessly, but yet it's sort of brilliant. I really enjoyed all the suspense and the build-up, and like I said, the intermission was perfectly placed because at that time I'm I'm ready to see more. The dialogue just melts time away. Every person that spoke, and I think... I love everyone in this cast, and this is really arrogant of me saying this, but I like Walton Coggins. I, I, Walter Coggins, uh, he's from The Wire. It's just great to see him mature into the big screen. He was so good in The Wire. A method actor, works incredibly hard, and um, he has this beautiful, beautiful role written for him, and he plays it to a T. And when he, you know, I love, I could listen all day to Jennifer Jason Lee, um, Kurt Russell, and uh, Samuel L. Jackson on that in that carriage talking about about their um, histories and things like that. It was amazing. And then when he comes in, talks about, um, you know, the, the Civil War, talks about um, Samuel Jackson's backstory, I, I could listen all the time, just melted away for me. And when it got to the intermission, I was like, oh, was that an hour already, you know? <laughs> Excuse me, I mean, um, Walton Coggins has been in The Shield. I'm, I'm a huge fan of The Shield and The Wire, of course. But, man, um, his, his performance in that show was just absolutely uh, amazing. Yeah. Well, Chapter 2, Son of a Gun, is when we're introduced to Chris Mannix, who's Walton Goggins' character. He talks about Mannix's marauders, how he's the new sheriff. So I think that's one of the big questions to ask you, Lloyd. Do you think that he was actually the new sheriff? I, I didn't believe that at all, no. Of Red Yeah, Hulk, no, no way. See, I did believe it. And I think this is something Quentin Tarantino wants us to debate, because we were given no definitive answer. The reason I thought he was the sheriff is because even at the end, he was saying my first act as sheriff, my first and last act as sheriff is, you know, hanging her. He was so committed to it. And I thought so often the sheriff is a former, like a reformed villain in Westerns and stuff. Like, why not? Well, I believed him at the end that he was the sheriff, but not at the beginning. I I did not believe him at all. Like uh, for a huge portion of this movie. Okay. By the end, you thought he was the sheriff. Right, okay, that's what I was I was asking. Oh, okay, yeah. So we both thought by the end yep. it was the sheriff. Yeah, I agree. Thing I thought about this film, you know, obviously Reservoir Dogs is a big influence. And uh, the, the real standoff nature of the whole thing probably helps that Tim Roth and Michael Madsen are both in it as well. The, the thing was, I kept thinking, at some point, everyone would shoot everyone. She would be the only survivor. In my head, I kept thinking, Daisy's going to survive. 
she seems like she won't, she's a prisoner, she's on her way to hang, and that at some point, at the end, she'll be the only one who walks out of that storm, you know, like, and sort of rides off into the distance or whatever, and it'll be just some crazy thing that happened to her, and she goes off and defects on the run or whatever she does. The whole film, that's what I had in my head, and I thought that would be the conclusion for sure. She was phenomenal in this. You mentioned uh, Walton Goggins. I thought both her and Walton Goggins stole the oh, show. I love Jennifer Jason Lee. She's fantastic. Je- like, even when she's not speaking, she's speaking. Like, the way how her eyes are moving around the room. And th- there is so much going on within her performance. She is absolutely magnificent. I, I, cannot- I-, I don't think she's done much in the last few years. I, I just remember her from uh, David Cronenberg's Existence, if I'm remembering that film uh, correctly, if she was in that. Um, I'll just go ahead and double check that of course but like there's she was in the jacket not too long ago yeah she's definitely in Um, existence um and machinist i I can see there on um, imdb but like there's that scene where you know right at the very beginning you introduced to to kurt russell and her and she says something and then he hits her in the head and he laughs about it and there's blood trickling on her forehead and he, she he's got she's like going yeah i understand you know just like okay we shouldn't laugh with kurt russell she he's hitting this woman you know but mm. towards the middle of the film you really grow to hate her and despise her especially the poison sequence that's when you're just yeah. like okay she is a horrible person you know like uh she yeah she held eye contact for just too long in some scenes which just makes you uneasy And at first I was thinking, oh, is she going to try and seduce someone to get out of this? You know, because she seemed like she was eye-fucking everybody she came into contact with. Especially the biggest example of that was Samuel Jackson in the... um uh, after with a bloody nose after she gets um, elbowed in the face and she's just licking the blood and then smiling and winking at him. And as well, she brings up the immediate racism. She calls him the N-word straight away, uh, which is like her introduction as a character. So, like, it would have been... An amazing role to get on paper but i feel like her and walton goggins both had the best roles here I've, in a way i felt like um kurt russell and uh, sam jackson were both like there to ensure the film was a hit well this you know, is like, interesting about the casting other than you know the, the big surprise channing tatum no one in the star billing or on the poster is over uh, is under like 45 you know this is an aging cast um you know and from a producer's point of view just like no i want a young i want a megan fox you know i want a charlize theron i want you know i want these good looking people i I can't think of a young good looking actor excuse me um, of course a zoe bell yes oh zoe (laughs) bell okay excuse me but not on the main cast you know what i mean like you look at the movie poster yeah. uh as a young person 18 year old you'd just be like who are these guys you know what i mean <laughs> why isn't a twilight star in this but tarantino is so powerful he's able to go no no this is the story these are the cast i want very few directors have that a power you know to go these this is my dream cast and this is my the dream script i want to make and it's yeah it, he yeah he strikes me as having final cut as oh, well yeah. so the um it was all kindling the prison and i just let it burn you know it was a nice scene i just enjoyed sam jackson's performance of that uh by the time we got to chapter three minnie's haberdashery uh the nail it shut joke <laughs> was hilarious it's great the sound in that scene you hear the shut it off shut it, you need two pieces you need- <laughs> yeah michael madsen was oh, coming through that he- door is a whore <laughs> <laughs> And also, like, there's god-awful coffee. Do you think the coffee pot was already poisoned? I know we didn't really see them poison it. 
Oh. But he, he sort of tasted the coffee and he was like, oh, it tastes like a Mexican's been putting his socks in there or something. I, I think they would out. have had to have shown Jennifer Jason Lee that that they were... Oh, sorry, um, D- Daisy Domingue, that they were going to poison it. It's too much of a risk to poison it and then they come in and he pours a coffee and offers it to her and then they're like oh don't drink it you know I, I, yeah yeah right fair enough uh, the the hateful eight who is in that who's referenced in that as eight because i'm pretty sure ob is not one of them played by james parks no he's not yeah so it's uh samuel jackson kurt russell jennifer jason lee walton goggins one two three four five um demian That's four so Bob, the Mexican, yeah, um, is five. five. Tim Roth, uh, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Michael Madsen Bruce and, Stern. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Bruce Stern. Bruce Stern. Yeah. Okay. Because he's very full of hate. Yeah. <laughs> he's spiteful, hateful, hate-filled man. <laughs> for um, he's got a lot of hate for Sam Jackson. Yeah. Well, well um, Ob is the biggest tragedy in this because he poor guy is like almost freezing, doing all that work, and then he dies in the most horrible way. Just like, oh, poor guy. But I mean, realistically, this is, I think this is a commentary on the war and North versus South, right? Because at the end, there's no survivors, which we'll talk about. But the fact that at the end, there's one representative of the North and one of the South, and they're both dying together as they've just hung a criminal. It seems a bit like a commentary on how in war, there are no winners. So, OB can't live um, because it doesn't work with the message of the film. For me, one issue I had, and as I said, I had a great experience watching the film. One issue I had, though, was with Bob the Mexican. For me, it seemed like a caricature. Like, um, do you know who Bob Odenkirk was? No. He is. Uh, He's the guy that plays Saul in Better Call Saul. Oh, yeah. Uh, from Breaking Bad, he was Saul the lawyer. Um, people might know him from the Mister Show, or as say Ted Mosby's one of his bosses in uh, How I Met Your Mother. Pretty much uh, Bob Odenkirk, a really comedic, funny guy. And I kept thinking Bob the Mexican was Bob Odenkirk because I had looked up nothing in this film. Like I'd avoided the TV spots and the script and everything. Uh, so I went in as fresh as I possibly could, and I was very confused. Like I was like, it seems like someone's acting mexican but they aren't actually Mexican. sure I, I yeah I, I got a bit of that as well i actually thought he had some prosthetics on yeah um, as well like to cover as, up yes the nose or l- something like a scar or something oh, yeah or something like that like he just seemed uh like a rubber mask almost was behind that scarf and that hat um but i like it how he offers ob us uh, hey ob you okay he goes i just need to get warm you want some stew you know it's just I, I there's a little bit of um uh, consideration on his part but then you just completely turn on any sympathy towards him when you see the flashback scene and the stabbing of that guy in the seat just yeah. like oh man this guy's awful yeah this I guy mean, is uh, hateful, <laughs> hateful. <laughs> you did it you worked it in <laughs> uh so the, his character didn't work for me and for, for like a long time i was um i was just a bit put off by him uh tim roth was great as a, oswaldo the hangman and as well how he introduces himself Oswaldo to Oswaldo Mowbray <laughs> <laughs> he introduces himself to Chris Mannix you know he's like oh, I'm gonna be the sheriff you know and they sort of there's a funny back and forth with them uh he all Chris Mannix also had the best lines like he was saying cut off my legs and call me shorty 
Um, my cinema went nuts when he said the N word in the stable. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I was Lincoln. laughing. Oh my gosh, that was great. He's got a Lincoln letter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he had all the best lines. And um, I kept thinking as well, there were too many kind of valuable papers that could be burnt or lost. Like they had the Lincoln letter. The hangman had papers because he was transporting Daisy Domagu. Kurt Russell, so he had the letter, yeah, about uh, Mannix have had had no paperwork to say he was the sheriff, though, uh, which I thought was interesting. And as well, you know, Oswaldo had cards and papers that said he was a hangman or whatever. But would he have had sheriff papers, do you think? I don't like, know. Uh, Joe Gage um, had his book, obviously, that he was writing in, yeah. <laughs> which we, of course knew as a fictitious book it's true but like so many things i was thinking well if they just burnt the hangman papers kurt russell's no longer transporting anybody you know because he's got this one letter about daisy saying she's a criminal but they just get rid of that that's it <laughs> um i was fascinated in this first half because uh, you see that odd red jelly bean yeah yeah little i love those little um clues all and around I absolutely the, the thought chi- it was the sign of a struggle too so it felt like this could have easily been a stage play, and that's probably partly because of the one location. Well, you heard about um, after the script got leaked, he did a performance, like a reading, um, where all the actors, like, I don't think it was the full cast you see in the movie. Some were recast, mm. um, or maybe schedule issues or whatever. I can't remember exactly who was in that um, that reading, but they did a reading and they had a full audience there, and it was such a success um he, he originally he was just going to do that reading and then release it as a paperback book he goes oh you know i'll just release this because he was so he felt so betrayed with that script being leaked but yeah. because of that reading went so they, everyone went crazy about it just gave him this huge confidence well like, all right i'll make this into a movie but he is considering making this as a stage play yeah i think it would work well i've heard of reservoir dogs i know people who have adapted reservoir dogs into a stage play um and that you know as you compared this film to reservoir dogs absolutely that's the case well he said himself he was influenced by reservoir dogs by himself so i thought kurt russell's character the hangman had a really big mouth uh he told everybody who daisy was every chance he could and the bounty on her head and also he tells people about the lincoln letter every chance he gets he just can't be (laughs) discreet (laughs) he's a very confident guy and you know, like, I think he's doing John Wayne because Kurt Russell pretty much it was directed by John Carpenter to be John Wayne in Big Trouble in Little China. Just, you know, a fish out of water sort of type of story. And I think Kurt Russell was doing a little bit, a little bit of in this year. Just the way he walks, he, you know, holds that uh, big gun. He's got the repeater. Um, I don't think it was a repeater. I could be way off on, on my guns there. And um, the way he was, like, telling Joe Gage to give him his weapon just the confidence he took and like he's like i've got my gun as well how he's about to you know um with uh draw it out um just uh, it oozed john wayne to me and yeah he just can't keep his mouth shut about certain things there was one little continuity problem i noticed and it will be the kind of thing i can't confirm until i see the film again but when they're sitting eating the broth at the table in chapter three uh, I feel like they repositioned Kurt Russell and Jennifer Jason Lee so they could frame them in between people in like that reverse shot. So they're sitting really close to each other in every other shot. You know, they're handcuffed together. And then they do this shot where the camera is behind the people at the table they're facing. So that you've got these silhouettes of people. And to fit 
Kurt Russell in one gap of the silhouettes and Jennifer Jason Leigh in the next, they've spaced them out more. And it's this one shot that it just looks a little off. And sure. I, I, you know, I'll rewatch it and uh, confirm it's in there at some point. But um, the stew in the face got big laughs in my audience. When you find out the Lincoln letters bullshit. <laughs> got yeah. me on that stagecoach, didn't it? <laughs> Uh, this movie took 178 days of shooting and I heard the biggest reason because of that was due to the cameras Um, it it was just they they couldn't do certain movements with it Um, they had to um, I don't know it just caused a lot of issues and one of the big ones they had to shoot each person's reaction like every scene like eight times because they were getting each person's reaction I'm not sure exactly how that works and why that extended the shoot but I, I just heard the cameras and the using those lenses were a big um, contribution to that I think there was some weather issues too and they had to replicate everything in like a cold stage in uh, in LA or something heading towards the intermission the Mexican Bob plays Silent Night on the piano, which again is not a very Mexican song. <laughs> but anyway, and Sam Jackson taunts Bruce Dern, the general, about his son and making him suck his dick. That's the only thing I didn't like about this movie was the oral sex Major Marcus Warren supposedly made Sandy Smithers' son, which is Bruce Dern's son, did when he killed him. It... it uh, you know, it most likely was made up that story just to go get, goad him into drawing that gun. But the tone of it just wasn't right for me. It just seems a bit too juvenile. I think it would have been as powerful if he had just said he watched his son die in the cold or shoot him in the body and watch him bleed to death in the in the knee. I just think the oral sex and thing was just a bit too much. It just seemed out of place or too modern for a Western. It felt out of place for me because... I I as well, I thought it stood out like a sore thumb in the film. It felt like the most indulgent thing Quentin Tarantino was doing. Uh, There was no call for flashbacks, you know, besides the entirety of the Four Horsemen chapter, which was all flashback. Yeah. But other than that, we don't see flashbacks. This is all happening in relatively kind of real time, you know, uh, or chronologically. And so it felt like to see this flashback of... You know, we, we should have seen a flashback of Sam Jackson's prison escape where he set things on fire, you know, or of Mannix Marauders, you know, or Kurt Russell catching people and hanging them, you know, because otherwise you don't need it. The monologues are sufficient. The actors are doing a good performance. Yeah, I, The flashbacks were overkill, and I thought watching Bruce Dern acting and responding would have sold it for me. I feel exactly the same way. You know, when he says the line, you're starting to see pictures now, visually it makes sense because they've just made us see pictures that's the only thing that did click about it but i mean i watched it and i just thought it was another excuse to use the 70 mil which was great uh you get to see the snow and like you know the you know the landscape i suppose but um it should have been a theme like we should have seen several flashbacks or none because it it was unnecessary and as I said, like, I mean, <laughs> indulgent, I guess, but that's Quentin Tarantino. No pun intended, but it just left a bad taste in my mouth, <laughs> that that sequence. I was just like, ugh, you know. Um, it just seemed too modern in a Western theme story. I know um, HBO's brilliant um, uh, Dead, Deadwood 
um, had a lot like the main character as cocksucker. He said, I think he's, that whole series has the words cocksucker in it more times than anything ever written, ever made. <laughs> you know that that show, um, but you never see anything like that. Um, and in this, seeing a western having a sequence like that just seems too juvenile to me and too modern, and it really took me out of the movie. I was like, ah. Uh. But I get what he's doing there. People's excuses, well, it's probably made up. That never happened, but it was to goad the general into reaching for that gun. But I just think it would have been as effective to say, I shot him and watched him bleed and laughed. You know, you shot my son. You know, it would have been just as effective. But that's even, just me. Even just the marching him naked through the snow is degrading enough. Exactly, exactly. And I think and- he would have wanted to shoot him after that but he took it a step further and it's a talking point and obviously people are going to love it whereas you and i both saw it as kind of too much uh it was a great way to go to the intermission which is right after bruce dern reaches for the gun and gets shot he shoots him puts the gun down and sits there quietly just before the intermission uh when samuel jackson comes in and he eyes everything he sees the jelly bean on the ground and he's having coffee he sees the old man sitting down and um walton goggins is going on about um, I should say his name, Sheriff um, Chris Mannix. Mannix. Chris Mannix. Sheriff Chris Mannix. Chris Mannix. Maybe, maybe Sheriff. Maybe Sheriff. <laughs> um, he, they're talking about, you know, my father served in the army. Oh, I never knew your father. And he comes over and he goes, oh, yeah, I was at that battle. And he's not acknowledging him. And he goes, I shot those black guys because I don't acknowledge their existence in uh, their union um uniform and then he's holding coffee and there's steam rising from the coffee and it just adds to the anger and frustration that uh, what um uh, everything um uh um sorry uh, um what's his name bruce Dern, general sandy summers uh, smithers was saying about um shooting all those guys just that beautiful imagery that little detail there of the coffee and samuel jackson getting really pissed off and he in fact drops the coffee and then reaches for his shooter um they're very well done that little moment there as well when bruce Dern's retelling stories you could have had flashbacks there and all flashbacks would have helped use the 70 mil camera 65 mil lens. yeah to get out of that room yeah but yeah you're right but not having it at all would have really even um emphasized or amplified that claustrophobic environment by breaking out for that brief moment oh we're now in the harsh snow but this open beautiful open area you know just takes you a bit away from the claustrophobic nature of the scene it would have been so much better just to have it on samuel jackson because as you say he's one of this is an academy award-winning um performance i think i feel so um annoyed that he wasn't even um acknowledged like that performance he was so good in this and um yeah like uh, uh he was doing such a good do- job of delivering that monologue it would have been perfectly fine to stay on samuel jackson that whole time mm-hmm. agreed and maybe uh the way tarantino sort of treats this <laughs> and maybe the indulgent nature of the flashback there maybe some things left a bad taste in you know academy members yes and and they you know have sort of seen it as less genius but he seems to be acknowledged for the writing which is good yeah um, i would have liked to have seen jennifer jason lee be nominated i guess did she get nominated i'm, I'm not I too sure I, so. I hope she did like i hope because th- this is a very very good movie um despite my issues with it um another thing that i think the academy um have issues with is his use of language especially the n-word 
um uh, the, he's been accused of being a racist there's also ideas that he's a misogynist because of how brutal uh, jennifer jason lee's treating this I, I don't agree with that at all i don't think quentin tarantino uh, thinks in those terms as being a racist or misogynist i think he really loves movies he loves black exploitation movies so his dialogue like it's uh, particularly jackie brown and of course uh, Django and chain it just uh, you know uses those strong um words i guess and the way he treats women is just part of the story i don't agree with um with people saying like just the the treatment of jennifer jason lee really showcases how misogynistic quinta tarantino is but i don't know he he builds so many strong female characters in particular kill bill jackie brown which i think is his best movie Uh, i i don't agree with that at all i think he's a guy who absolutely loves movies understands genres completely and he's just lifting that part of the genre putting it um in that scene and you know it works it ultimately works it does affect you i've just looked up the oscar nominations and i'm wrong best performance by an actress in a supporting role jennifer jason lee is nominated good as well it's nominated for cinematography oh wow for original score that's the thing um he's armed with robert richardson uh bob richardson some nickname him the white devil uh he's uh, a big controversy with him uh, was over um uh, world war z he infamously uh, took his name off the credits uh, aggressively because he wasn't happy with how they were color grading i think the film and um he removed his name from that uh, movie but I- i'm a huge oliver stone fan so i've seen robert richardson mature from all the way with oliver stone and then they had a huge falling out together and robert richardson has since teamed up with martin scorsese i think he's um, shot three of his movies and of course with quentin tarantino he is one of the only two living directors to hold three academy awards and his three academy awards were for jfk aviator and hugo and uh, he's definitely one of the and the other one is Vittorio Storaro I, I can't pronounce his name um, uh, for Apocalypse Now he usually teams up with um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola I think he's retired now very very good um, <laughs> DOP obviously but I think Robert Richardson is probably the most decorated in terms of nominations and Academy Awards and he just doesn't stop working like he is a magnificent uh, director of photography yeah no I'm I'm hoping she gets the nomination um, I'd be happy with all three of those um those awards obviously tarantino hasn't been nominated for original screenplay yeah yeah it was nominated for a golden globe in a world of uh reboots and remakes and sequels you really have to celebrate writers like quentin tarantino who make all the effort like quentin tarantino could just go back to adapting he's proven he can adapt stories really well with jackie brown but he's really made it an objective of his like to always only make original um screenplays now like um and i I think that is a very beautiful thing to see to see an original story up there on screen and i've got nothing against sequels or reboots or remakes i I absolutely love them but i i also love original stories you know so it's refreshing almost to see an original story uh chapter four of this original story was domagoo's got a secret which uh, included that reference to Bodney Bay song that I mentioned, uh, the poisoning in the coffee, which we've sort of talked about. Uh, as well, when the puking blood happens, I was thinking maybe it was like a reference to Carrie, uh, <laughs> the film where she's covered in blood. And uh, That's a good point, Dave, because that's actually one of Quentin Tantino's favourite movies of all time. Okay, when you cover a girl with blood... <laughs> It's hard not to think about that. <laughs> that um, um, uh, also, Quentin Tarantino delivers the um, voiceover at that point to tell yeah. the audience about the story, which I thought was interesting. 
interesting. I don't know. I was thinking, is this Quentin Tarantino? Like, you know, voiceover to explain it. I was wondering if, like, um, he thought maybe some people would have walked in after the intermission into the wrong movie or something. <laughs> some people literally did that in mine, uh, my session. They came in and I was, you know, near enough to the door that they asked me. And they said, is this... Um, Hateful Eight? Is this... Uh, no, they're just, they were confused and I just interrupted and I said, it's the Hateful Eight, we're just in the intermission. They're like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and they left. I think they were looking for... Um, uh, I can't even remember what they were looking for now, but um, it was not anything like Hateful Eight. That um, guitar, and I love the framing of that. Like, he drinks... Like, the, the coffee pot is poisoned and it's teased a lot if Kurt Russell is going to drink it. And of course, I was reading, please don't drink <laughs> the whole time. And the way that's framed, it's a pull focus where you have focus on the foreground and then it focuses to something on the background. And the way Daisy Domingue is playing the guitar and then she looks behind her and then sees um, Kurt Russell pouring the coffee. It's so brilliantly done and staged um, and timed. It's like, uh, I know it's one shot. It's only a pull focus, but to get the timing and pacing of that is very difficult to do. You have to be very 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 skillful to pull that off and um it's very hitchcockian um it's really tense that moment and it's such a beautiful um scene by the way that guitar she's singing i don't know if you heard it just came out recently was an authentic martin guitar from the 1870s and they didn't tell kurt russell like to cut and then we're going to replace it with a replica he just took the guitar on that take and then smashes the guitar and daisy domague or excuse me jennifer jason lee's reaction is real like whoa, whoa wait that, that's not the um that's oh, not the gosh. replica and then he smashes the guitar the story they told um the pe- people they lent they got a lent of oh sorry a uh, thing fell on it um you know and broke the guitar and they were, they were like um when it got out that oh yeah kurt russell um actually broke the the original guitar during that take um they were really pissed off they're like oh, well that's not the story they told us <laughs> mm. wow i hadn't heard that yeah well they could be full of crap they could have like actually broke it because obviously they're um complaining about the martin guitar being broken but it, they could have you know um just be making it up oh yeah kurt russell broke the actual guitar you know <laughs> i mean if they were there for 178 days maybe cabin fever set in yeah. <laughs> and they were just you know reacting who do you think poisoned the coffee because as i was watching it um it seemed to be between uh michael madsen tim roth or bob the mexican or bob the and mexican was playing the guitar oh playing yeah, the piano playing that the scene. piano silent night i kept uh, thinking that it was Tim Roth's character. I, I was. I'm going with Joe Gage. It has to be Joe Gage for me. Or we go with my theory that it's the ugliest one. That, did it. <laughs> that was my you, favorite. Joe oh Gage. my god! <laughs> Ooh-wee, we got the ugliest. <laughs> <laughs> I loved the, you know, um, Sam Jackson part where he was saying. Uh, no dogs or Mexicans allowed and you're still just oh my god dogs. but see how powerful that was we didn't cut away or anything no and we it, didn't need to yeah and I love it how he goes well, let's slow this right down I was like yes slow this right down I want to take in every moment from now like what is happening but I was so disappointed there's two things I want to bring up one is 
when Kurt Russell is punching Jennifer Jason Lee in the face and then she grabs the gun and points it to his belly and they have a moment of pause, he realises, well, it's over now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get shot and she shoots him. Why didn't Marcus Warren help at all? Why didn't he jump in there, grab the gun off her or shoot her hand or something like that? He just watched the whole thing. And there's mm. another thing during that monologue, uh, sorry to go back again, but um, when uh, Marcus Warren, Samuel Jackson shoots uh, Bruce Dern, how come uh, Walton Goggins didn't jump in? more like he seemed really respectful of defensive of the general exactly sure. and he didn't jump in earlier or anything like don't reach for the gun or i know he wasn't armed so he couldn't aim at samuel jackson but i don't know just just two moments like there i was just like well wouldn't that character be doing this yeah they sort of the 70 mil makes the room look bigger than it is so you sort of can imagine them having their own conversations in the corner but it felt like sam jackson was taunting everybody in that sequence as well so like getting everyone's attention the thing is the voiceover i think as well said that uh, they had a debate about whether or not it was lawful sure and um so that was when he stepped in the bit we didn't see during the intermission was when Mannix sort of was like you couldn't shoot him you know that was you just killed him in cold blood and and sam jackson seems like you know uh that it, it is lawful that he was in defense because he drew the gun and that's basically why he goaded him into it so I suppose we see that confrontation off screen. Okay, I agree just... with that. What about when Marcus Warren didn't help John Ruth being um, shot by uh, Daisy Donahue? Yeah, um, I don't know. At that stage... Maybe he's um, just shocked. Just like, what the hell? What should I do? And blood's just oozing everywhere. He knows Kurt Russell's dead at that point. Yeah, he's seen him drink the poison coffee or he knows he's drunk the poison coffee and he knows as well that Mannix isn't in on it because he almost drank it. Um, I suppose... The hangman has served his purpose. Maybe there's no need. They're not really friends. There's a mutual respect. He wanted to get on that carriage. Maybe he doesn't really mind if the hangman dies. Yeah. I don't know. Not sure. I like the buddy relationship between them. How um, he goes, are we still on with the agreement? I suppose so. And, you know, they shook hands before Mannix gets on. He goes, oh, I love this love. <laughs> you having a... Uh, what was it a bounty hunter picnic (laughs) (laughs) just with with lines like that so I like that buddy relationship and they work so beautifully together when they disarm Joe Gage when the knife comes up and he goes calm down did he blink and he goes he blinked you know I love that I want more of that I could see a whole buddy film with John Ruth and uh, Major Marcus Warren and their adventures in the west I really wish that existed somewhere you know I love these characters oh my gosh it's killing me how I just didn't see John Ruth fire a gun like or you know just to see how fast he is or how he rounded up um domigue and and got got the bandits away from her and oh geez i'd love to see previous adventures with him it's really killing me but yeah that yeah sounds like a graphic novel (laughs) (laughs) the thing was as well channing tatum is underneath the floorboards the entire time and uh when we get bob shot in the face and he's unidentifiable the audience laughed in my theater <laughs> that was and so it, bloody apparently the yeah. special effects were done by i think the walking dead dude so right. yeah yeah so yeah <laughs> so graphic and i think that's where you're getting your 18 year olds in they're expecting the hateful eight's going to be a bloodied affair you know but you're going to have to wait through all the talky-talky moments. For me, gore is pretty boring, but I do love fast action. Uh, I love action, but um, uh, the dialogue for me was the highlight of this movie. Like I could listen all day to them talk. Everything was so intriguing, the characters, everything about them. And then when we get to the violence, uh, if you're after that, if you're bloodthirsty after that, it does definitely pay off. (laughs) 
Agreed. And I mean, the one effect I thought was impressive was when she has her front teeth broken and she spits them yep. at um, the hangman. And just laughs. Yeah. And that was, you know, obviously an insane performance, which was fantastic to see. But, you know, just broken front teeth, I reckon, are probably a phobia of mine. Like oh, <laughs> imagining yeah. somebody punching me in the face and breaking my teeth. Oh, the amount of dreams I've had where I've bitten into something and all my teeth have shattered. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and I think that when you have like your teeth falling out or breaking in dreams, it's like a sign that you're not in control. I heard it's uh, money issues. Oh, really? But it's all theories. We, we don't sure. know. Well, um, I mean, nobody wants to really get their teeth knocked out anyway, but, you know, there was well done as an effect in the film, like a practical effect. And then obviously she didn't have front teeth for the rest of the film. So, you know, all her speeches and everything, it's sort of got a whole new tinge to it. Yeah, that's right. Um, Channing Tatum shoots him from below the floorboards. Right uh, in the nuts. (laughs) Right in the junk. And uh, Tim Roth shoots Walton Goggins, who shoots back. It's all very Reservoir Dogs. Everyone's shooting something. (laughs) I love it how he's like, he looks at Joe Gage, he's about to shoot him, he goes, I don't, it's in slow motion, I don't know, we're gone. And he's like thinking about, he's like, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. You know what, you can see Walton Goggins, his arm, he's thinking about this moment, he goes, yeah, maybe he's got nothing to do with this. And then he's looking at um, Tim Roth, who's uh, mortally wounded because he's screaming in pain and he's hurt in the legs. And you hear Samuel Jackson just screaming with the blood well i don't get i don't know how he got away from it i don't understand why channing tatum didn't fire a few more times to make sure he killed samuel jackson uh, i guess being under the floorboards his space was really limited under there um mm. but the way well, was apparently in the real script he shoots him to death or they they kill him in that sequence in the original script so uh he shoots him a few times and daisy strangles him or something and they finish off sam jackson's character then so that was changed from the leaked script everyone does ask why he didn't keep shooting like why he then doesn't shoot anymore um because you know he could have shot and killed him at that point and i don't really have an answer for that short of um he's trying to protect his sister so maybe continuing to shoot puts her in danger yeah because um the sheriff um still had the upper hand uh i don't know um manic sorry still had the upper hand but he he, it's interesting how he portrays violence it's so real it's not like it is comic book with the way um the bob the mexican dies his head just completely falls apart but it's the reactions of these incredible actors that makes it well this isn't funny because you see tim roth screaming in pain because of the gunshot wound and then you see samuel jackson and it's all slowed down so you get every visceral detail of the bloody wound and the pain that's going through um samuel jackson and you laugh for a bit and then you're just like well this is this is horrific i never want to be in a situation like this where i've lost my nuts or i've been shot in the stomach you know it's just oh and poor tim roth again getting shot in the stomach (laughs) yes he can't escape it can he (laughs) chapter five was the four passengers which uh was the flashback chapter showing how uh, at Minnie's haberdashery reminded me was... a lot of uh, Kill Bill 2 where the wedding sequence where you see the bride getting shot and you saw all the deadly Viper squad moving I think he used very similar framing 
to how they all come in and stuff like that, like the shot of the shoes and all of them yeah. walking in. They're just a choreography. They just didn't seem like like the, a gang that works together, like a British dude, Michael Madsen, Bob the Mexican. They just didn't seem like, you know, a gang that would all fit together, but um, it, it works really well. <laughs> I, uh, I enjoyed it. It was a welcome change of pace for the film. Um, but well, weren't you enjoying get... the mystery part of that? Like that whole mystery, who done it? Or you, you're still guessing, and then the flashback happens. It's just like, oh well, never mind. We now know who's. <laughs> yeah. We now know what's what. The half plucked chicken. The door is unbroken. The red jelly beans not on the floor yet. I thought Zoe Bell was a bit wasted. Like I thought she was going to do a stunt, because that's her profession. But I suppose she's moving into more acting and. Uh, they got a little Auckland jazz. She, she in probably there as well. did a lot of the stunts that we don't know of. Like, I can't. Oh, possible. Yeah. Because that, that stuntmen usually are the uncredited, unsound. You know, they, they do stunts, but you think, oh, wow, I can't believe Arnold Schwarzenegger did that, when in fact it's completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we learn that Channing is Jody, who's Daisy's brother, and uh, Michael Madsen gets this scene where he executes the man begging in the shed, which was, you know, made me think Michael Madsen was going to have a great big role in this, you know, just like something was going to change. And we were like, he was the strong, silent type. And he largely just sits there with his little pretend diary. Yeah, he, he's a cool character. I really like yeah. my, just the, his delivery of lines, his voice. And it's just great to see him. You know, I know his greatest role ever will always be Mr. Blonde. But I'm just like, wow, um, Quentin Tarantino, Michael Madsen again. Because he was, he was supposed to be Vic Vega in Pulp Fiction. Um, but he couldn't make it due to scheduling issues. So he gave it to John Travolta, and which gave John Travolta a huge career boost at that point i bet she's regretting it ever since <laughs> quentin tarantino's voiceover as well tells us that they hid guns for later use i thought they could have just showed us <laughs> that was over explaining it but anyway now the last chapter of this film is titled black man white hell which made me certain sam jackson was going to die <laughs> that that was originally going to be this movie he originally saw it as a sequel to Django Unchained, and that was the title um, uh, for it. But of course, it changed. Like that's why there's bounty hunters at the start with um, Samuel Jackson got them all piled up because that was originally supposed to be Django, and then of course, obviously, it took a completely different route. Jody Channing Tatum and his tiny cameo in this obviously gets shot in the head while he's saying hi to his sister. <laughs> He goes, throw out your gun. And he throws out his gun. He goes, throw out another gun. I don't have another gun. Well, you better shit out another gun. <laughs> <laughs> Probably has another gun down there. <laughs> yeah. yeah that was and then he shoots him in the head. Like, I love that little, little brief moment. It was beautiful. He goes, how you doing, dummy? And then, um, you know, the, the sibling, you know. Like, if you can believe, I think Jennifer Jason Lee's early 50s and Channing Tatum's late, early 30s, I think. You know, if you can believe their brother and sister, whatever. But, um, like, he shoots him in the head because he was unarmed. Yeah, well, he was taken too long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was amusing. I, I did enjoy that. As well, the uh, the Mexican's worthless because he's unidentifiable. And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tim Roth and Michael Madsen are just bleeding out and dying. <laughs> There was a scene there where Sam Jackson's voice went all weird and slow motion-y. Do you remember <laughs> you that? You're gonna trust that diabolical bitch? <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure about that. <laughs> I thought I couldn't stop laughing. I was like, what? Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> you're not sure about Maddox as he smiles back. 
you know, he uh, Samuel Jackson's run out of ammo. He's killed Joe Gage. He tried to re- reach for the weapon. Uh, Tim Roth is finished. Like, he, he's bleeding out. He, he's definitely de- going to be dead. And um, we have a really um, brutal... Oh, no, that comes a bit later where he cuts. she cuts off the arm of... Um, uh, of Kurt Russell, John Ruth's um, character. Yeah, he just passes like, oh, out at the worst moment. And she <laughs> she hacks off. The I I arm. love that moment. I will want to watch the whole movie again just for this moment, um, where he's yelling at Daisy Domingue about a ga- her gang, and he says something like, "My daddy held up to four hundred men together after the war with nothing but their respect." Um, I think to his command. I think that's what he says. Your brother is just an owl hoot who let a gang of killers and it cuts to Samuel Jackson at that moment who lets out a smile like he finally um, uh, understands Mannix like, and wh- why he goes on about his father so much uh, and it's my favourite scene of the movie that small moment and he goes oh I don't feel so good <laughs> he falls back he passes out and then it's a race for her to chop off the arm of um, Kurt Russell and then get the <laughs> Oh my gosh! And get the um the gun. Now, do you think there were fifteen men in Red Rock? True or false? It probably there probably were. Um, maybe the, uh, it wouldn't surprise me that there was more to that gang because uh, when um Channing Tatum's character just before he goes under the uh, uh basement, he goes, "It doesn't matter if we have four or forty men." Um, he's got uh John Ruth has got a gun to my um baby sister's or my sister's um belly, and so we we got to do this carefully. You know, um, yeah. Did you think it was strange that they kept the general alive? A lot of people have questioned that. Like, he just added authenticity to the scene. Sure. They just told him to sit in a chair. I don't care about you or anybody else in Wyoming. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people have said, why didn't they just kill him and just, you know. (laughs) And another big criticism is, why didn't they just shoot the hangman like instead of this convoluted plan where they wait till he falls asleep he comes through the door he walks in why don't they just blast his head off then i thought about that but it was just, it was just too dangerous he could get a fire shot off at and kill um daisy domague um there's just too many risks in that factor if you want to rescue that prisoner you just gotta poison the coffee or something <laughs> i oh. thought the perfect perfect moment to strike was when he was throwing up from the blood well, I thought you the know. perfect moment to strike in retrospect was when he's hammering the door. Sure, yeah, absolutely. His hands are occupied. He's hammering the door. He's holding the wood. Yep. They could have easily just stepped up behind him and blam, that's yeah. it. I know it doesn't make for much of a movie, but um, obviously I enjoyed the film <laughs> as it was. Uh, when she's hanging there, they decide they make the decision to hang her and the arm is just dangling as she's kicking and then when they pull back, they land on the piano keys and they just mash them. I thought that was a really nice moment. Oh, I like that little dance. <laughs> that was so oh, hey, terrible. Uh, <laughs> hey, can I see that Lincoln letter? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I liked that and, it was... And he reads out the whole thing and that's when we reveal... Oh, that, that That's when it's revealed to the audience the full letter because we only hear fragments of it. Yeah. And men like you will make a difference. Old Mary Todd is calling. That's a nice touch. <laughs> I like it. It's like uh, Abe Lincoln, suppose he said, "We still got a long way to go," you know. Mm. And then there, there's an interesting. I think it's a Roy Orbison song. Um, they're not all going to come back home. There or won't something like. be many coming home. Yeah, in reference to you know how many people. I thought that, I also thought that was a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> um, in reference to obviously war, 
you know this civil war has taken so many lives and this is just you know the, although this is post the war it's a, a very brutal moment yeah and um just to kind of finish with the wartime marching song i guess ties together that theme we were talking about before ah i am um, i really enjoyed it i just as a 70 i gotta ask dave we, we did a video on it um we on our podcast you asked the question is the hateful eight too long i argued i could watch tarantino a, a full mini series of um inglorious bastards you know just to hear that dialogue did you find hateful eight too long because that's one of your biggest worries well for me no as the dialogue like we said it it made the time fly by um fantastic i enjoyed it i could have sat for another 20 minutes maybe but yes um, i think for the average moviegoer and as i mentioned the people who i know that uh downloaded it rather than watching it uh all they could say was it was too talky so i think maybe there's uh an indulgence to it it's not for everybody but like kevin smith tarantino has an audience and they follow him everywhere they're like a loyal group you know uh, we're not going to go anywhere we're, we're waiting to see what you know nine and ten are for him do you think he's going to finish after ten he's always said that he's doing ten feature films i really hope he doesn't i really hope he keeps going um but he's he knows more about um more more about uh cinema than me and he always says when a director hits a certain age that their films get worse and worse and i really don't want to do that i just want to have a good legacy behind me of um these really solid films but he also said never say never but that that's his aim the the biggest reason why he's seeing a a number on each of his um films and he isn't the first one to do that fellini as far as i know was uh well prior to him with eight and a half and so forth um that's literally one of his movies um with um with tarantino he's counting down to 10 maybe 11 and then that's it he's just going to work on tv series he's just going to work on books he's just going to work on theater stage um so but producing producing he is a very very important voice we we grew up with him dave so i i can go on and on about tarantino but for me every movie comes out with is a huge event and watching the hateful eight in this format was so incredible i really wish canberra had an orpheum cinema um because it just that whole experience of going in there getting a program watching the overture and you're just in hands of an incredible director great cast great dop great production design to have the intermission come back watch a story and and then of course obviously to talk about it with you my favorite part um (laughs) is was just such a great experience i absolutely love this and um i feel really bad for anyone who missed out on uh watching the roadshow show and um in defense of them it, it wasn't shown in very many cinemas and not for very long uh you did get the program then i stole three of them dave which (laughs) i hope to sell in ebay um after a couple of years (laughs) it's funny because it cost me a lot of money to go to sydney and watch it (laughs) it's like i I think it worked out 180 bucks i spent yeah Yeah. right yeah well i mean worth it (laughs) well fuel and buses and taxis or whatever a dollar for every minute on screen (laughs) um i actually grabbed a few copies as well had you not seen it in 70 mil i was going to get you one Uh, oh really (laughs) but uh there's no need you've got your ebay copies (laughs) you're all set yeah two for ebay one for myself there's no way um i'm such a movie fan i'm I'm not gonna go without one (laughs) i was discussing with some people on message boards about the uh the program and in the u.s versions 
That's why I posted it on our YouTube channel as an Australian version. But in the US versions, they had eight different programs, one with each of the Hateful Eight. So the idea is like on eBay, you can collect them all. People are selling them off and you didn't know which one you were going to get. That's awesome. Yeah, which I thought was an odd thing uh, for the Australian one not to have because they all yeah. seem to be... Oh, uh, we always get gypped with those things. That's why all my Blu-rays are Region A. I'm just not going to buy into the whole... Uh, like, I'll buy some Region Bs. Like, in UK, they release awesome um, uh, versions there, but usually Australia will always get gypped. Well, next time on Pod Me, if you can, guys, we are going to check out Anomalisa, which is uh, Charlie Kaufman co-wrote and co-directed it's the first R-rated animated film to be Oscar-nominated Oscar for Best Animated Film. And uh, there's quite a bit to chew up. <laughs> it's in theatres right now, so uh, if you can see it, check it out. That'll be our next episode. Uh, in the meantime, on our YouTube channel, which you can get to through podmeifyoucan.com, uh, you'll find many, many reviews, Lloyd. And you talk about opening titles, you know, and how important they are with Tarantino. So many of the films we review on the YouTube channel are straight black background, white titles. <laughs> um, the worst one ever, you guys should check it out, is Mesmerized. I reviewed with Jodie Foster um, oh, and John Lithgow. Oh my gosh, it's the worst title sequence I've ever seen. <laughs> um, the, the films we review on the YouTube channel, they're all obscure movies with somebody famous in them. So you may not have heard of the film, but you'll know the actors or actor um sometimes the dvd cases have like a really big picture of brad pitt and then he's in two minutes of the film you know uh it's a little little film gems occasionally we find something fantastic a lot of the time they're five out of ten type movies um but it's fun to analyze them and do something a bit different on the youtube channel of course there's a whole back catalog of uh, podcasts as well lloyd mentioned django unchained is on there We've, uh, we've been doing this podcast since 2011, so we've covered quite a lot of films in that time, haven't we, Lloyd? I mean, we're oh, moving, absolutely. Yeah. moving towards 150 episodes, so if there's anything there that interests you, Star Wars seems to be a popular one at the moment. A lot of people are listening to the Force Awakens podcast. That's the um, social media pipes you can find us down. Um, and look, normally, so next time I'm looking forward to having a chat with you, Lloyd. But uh, until then, guys, it's been a pleasure talking about the Hateful Eight with you. And uh, we look forward to seeing what Tarantino does next. Hit it. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Go to www.podmeifyoucan.com. Pod Me If You Can. Movie Reviews.